0: So no, it was the idea, like uh, the the initial email says something like it's going to be huge and it's going to be overwhelming. And so you will have to keep it by your your, uh, set that's by the fire and uh, it will take months to digest. And uh, this is what we want to do, which I thought was a great idea.
1: Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I am Gary Snow, and with me is Eric Nudon, who is one half of the Mary Mushman and the other half being Olivier uh, Revenue, uh, who is not with us today, but I'm sure uh, Eric is going to share a lot of the insights as both of their contributions to NOC Magazine, issues one, two, and three. And uh, Eric, welcome.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So NOC Magazine has, I think, in a very short order now, become like the go-to magazine for the OSR scene. And I know there's others, but uh, I think people really have gravitated towards NoC as being something very special. And so you should be very proud of that uh, achievement. Um, And I want to talk to you all about the process of developing the magazine. But first of all, Mm -hmm. as always, we want to know a little bit about your history and your background and how you got into gaming in the first place.
0: All right, so we have to get back to the, the olden days, the early 80s. Um, and uh, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. I was aware of Dungeons and Dragons through a box that I have with me here. Um, but I, I guess, I, I'm sure you'll never guess which, which D&D box I started my journey with.
1: Did, did you start with the Moldvay? Bay? Mm-hmm.
0: No, I got the movie just after that, but uh, I'll show you because you you'll know this thing, which is not the original. I, I tracked it uh, on uh, eBay like 20 years ago. It was still an old thing. It's a, a metal 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 Um the brand uh electronic game that was yeah. just using the 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 G&D brand to have like a, a little maze uh, warrior versus dragon uh thing but that's the only way i uh that's probably yeah the only way i could have heard of dungeons and dragons because in the 80s in france it was in wargaming war gaming magazines and i was 11 at the time um but as soon as the um, Malvay, the French version of the Malvay uh, box, uh, appeared in toy shops, um, I made sure I made sure I got one for I don't know if it was a birthday or, or Christmas or something else. Um, and yeah, that's how uh, your your nerd journey starts. Uh, what what, what was the culture like? Um, it was it was very interesting because very soon. I suppose it's probably um, like a national pride kind of thing uh, in France when uh, you see something that's uh, so tied to writing, it had to be, it had to be something that we could do and probably do better. Yeah. Uh, so um, translations appeared, but like as soon as I think 84, there were French games, uh, some of them very indie-like, uh, some of them very, very different. Uh, and it's to this day, it's still happening. Uh, there's, there's dozens of games being released by small to very small companies. Like on, we, we don't have any uh, big uh, publishers anymore, but uh, it, it's still happening. Moday, who you might... Who you might know as uh, being a huge international publisher of board games started making uh, role-playing games about being punks in the city.
1: Was it the same kind of um, like when you watch like a TV show like Stranger Things or something like that? Was it the same kind of thing, where it's like a geeky group of kids that kind of got together, or
0: yeah, I suppose I suppose so because. Um... Like your, your childhood friends, they play with you for a bit and then they, they want to do something else, and, but you don't. <laughs> so you find other friends. And yeah, you, you find the, the freaks and the geeks uh, in the school and you stick together until, uh, until you go to college and you find other freaks.
1: And so from those early days of playing with your friends, did you always uh, aspire to make role-playing games yourselves
0: or or yourself? Now, I don't. I don't think so. I, I you know, like everyone else, especially in, in those days, you had to make a lot of stuff yourself. But uh, um, it started very late. I didn't realize I was a writer until I was in my late twenties, when I actually ended up uh, working for a game publisher for whom I had been translating uh, Feng Shui, uh, the first edition. So that was like 97, 98. Um and I ended up. They need someone to uh, be a line manager, and uh, I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go across France." Which you know, at the, uh, it doesn't mean anything for our uh, new world uh, listeners and viewers, but uh, to me at the time, crossing the, the tiny country of France uh, across was uh, was a big move. Uh, I had to go in the east and in the north, where you know they have penguins and uh, they probably still speak German. Um, but, um, and that's when, yeah, I, I ended up uh, putting more hands in the products that we were making. There was a lot of translation. There was a Oriflam was the translator and they were doing, um, they'd been doing uh, Chaosium. Uh, like most of Chaosium lines, except for Call of, C- of Cthulhu uh, in translation and uh, the D20 boom happened and we were like yeah let's do something d uh, d like and uh, uh, I ended up um, being the lead writer on that and uh, meeting a lot of people including Olivier at that time so that's exactly 20 years ago I, I checked the dates <laughs> recently
1: <laughs> and have you stayed within the game industry this whole time or do you have like a other career that's kind of been parallel with that?
0: No, I've been, um, I I went to video games for three or four years, Uh, did very little development, and and ended up um, at Goa who were the European publishers of games like um, Dark Age of Camelot and uh, uh, the Warhammer, uh, Warhammer MMO. Which whose names I can't I can't remember at the moment, um, but that's what that's what brought the brought the whole company to Ireland, um, and uh, also tanked the whole company. <laughs> uh, but I stayed.
1: And that's a really good time to mention that you're actually in Dublin, uh, mm-hmm. coming uh, to us today. And so you've been there with you went with the video game company, and then you've been there ever since.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a huge. Um, fuck of uh, investment of a lot of millions uh, and uh, it didn't end well uh, everyone was offered a, a job in the because the company was um, owned by uh, Orange the, the big telco um, so everyone was offered to uh, go back to France and find a job there and uh, but I had I had met someone and I didn't want to go back to Paris anyway so I've been here, and I've been yeah making making games, writing novels that never sold, uh, doing everything I could do with a keyboard, basically.
1: And did you learn a lot of lessons from like the video game industry that you brought towards? I guess you learn always, no matter what you're doing. But did, was there any skills that you t- kind of took from that world into role playing
0: games? You get you get organiz- organizational. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like, at this, you get that kind of stuff. You, you get better at um, spending money uh, properly and uh, being uh, being on time and uh, uh, be less passive aggressive with people when they're late on their deadline. <laughs> that kind <laughs> of stuff. Uh, I'm still not very good at. Uh, <laughs> that. Um, I can't say we were doing a lot of editorial, um, like parallel content, so the websites and stuff like that. So we didn't do um, development or, or anything at that time. Um, it's such a different medium anyway. I don't think there, there are a lot of uh, lessons from video game play that we can use in while playing games. They tried that with, with Force Edition. And, uh, of the ND and we you know, the results.
1: And, and when did you get back into, like, uh, like, or go into the OSR scene? When did you discover that? Because that seems to be uh, the niche that you've kind of really uh, cut your teeth into.
0: Yeah, I, I think it, it, it uh, got its teeth into me instead. Uh, that must have been, like, 2012, 2013, uh, before th- twenty thirteen, because uh, I, I know I started working on games at that time, I had I had stopped for like two three years to actually run and play games, um, but it didn't take uh, didn't take uh, for very long. So um, I started looking at uh, what what was online and actually ended up doing more more story games. I was more on the, on the story games kind of. Um, um, Kind of uh, buzz. Uh, I remember James West. You know James West of um, uh, Black Pudding uh, fame, the the OSR uh, artist and, and designer. He's he's doing gozer on uh, on uh, starter. He he was there on that scene uh, at that time, and I I found a game that I really loved uh, from him that was called the pool and hacked it and started sharing that. Um, But somehow Dungeon World uh, appeared. Uh, I was already playing a a Powered by the Apocalypse uh, game at the time, which was Monster of the Week. And uh, Dungeon World appeared. And there was a French version that was a red box. Uh, So, you know, uh, Nostalgia did its work and uh, I got into that. And from that I was, I, I started looking at what the OSR or other, other people around the OSR were, were doing and uh, getting more and more nostalgic. Uh, I hacked a little um, GM less uh, dungeon exploring game that I called White Books that uh, was never released, but uh, probably online still somewhere. Um, and I think when I really understood what you could do with the OSR was uh, into the odd, like the first or even the pre. The, the print publish, uh, publishing edition, uh, and there, then I was hooked because you have three stats, you have uh, hit points, and uh, that's all you need, and it's going to force an experience that is not prescribed the way a par- by the apocalypse does. It doesn't. It doesn't, you know, box you in to uh, the game, uh, which which works, you know, uh, but it's it's. Kind of a more free experience, and uh, it will still induce a, a uh, particular gameplay that I really enjoy.
1: And when did you uh, come up with uh, Macchiato Monsters um, in that journey? Because I I really like the game, and it in your credits you often you uh, say you Into the Autumn is an influence, and then I also noticed there is a, a dungeon and sea which was also another uh, credit that you put there, but there's a lot of um, OSR um, games that you credited for that influence and the white hack and the, and the black hack as well.
0: So I was running white hack and really enjoying it. Um, I liked the fact that you can come up with your own concept for characters and give them traits and, um, come up with spells. Uh, But uh, David Black, so everyone was on Google Plus at the time. So it was like, like, if you haven't been on Google Plus, you have no idea. Uh, It was a smorgasbord of uh, everything gaming happening all the time. And you could just click and read the books, read the books, and click and be on a a Zoom call like this one, and start playing. it was like a lot of emulation. Uh, and so David Black appeared with the, his pre publishing uh, Black Hack. And I was like, yeah, this is really good. This is much more simple. I don't have to remember where the trades go, et cetera, et cetera. So at the back of my uh, White Hack Notebook edition, uh, I started uh, copying and pasting. You know, Properly uh, cut and pasting, I mean, uh, bits from uh, the PDF of, uh, of that pre-pre-release uh, black hack. Um, thinking it's going to take me a week, uh, and then I'll have a cool uh, game that I can play. Uh, it took me three years <laughs> in the end, uh, and uh, it's called Macchiato Monsters because it had a little bit of white into the black. Uh, and since I didn't think that panda or zebra would be uh, as nice, uh, I mean. Yeah, it's not a game about coffee, people, but uh, it's a uh, it's a game uh, that has monsters, and uh, I think I put some coffee in the equipment list, so it counts. Well, I really,
1: I really liked how you uh, did the resourcing on the uh, macchiato monsters. Where, like, if uh, the the steps down and up that you could do that, that was uh, I thought uh, like a clever little mechanic that you added in that... As well like if i look back upon that document you can see some of the initial uh pieces of when i look at knock magazine and your contributions i can kind of see like the the precursor to some of your content that you've added to knock magazine over the years just like the, oh yeah
0: of course it, the it's primordial the, i i haven't run uh Machieto monsters in like probably two years um but I remind myself every time I run something to have it in my bag because those tables that I, I wrote for, you know, uh, exploration and uh, harvesting food on the way and uh, weather and stuff like that—they're uh, there. I don't—I don't need to come up with a new system or, or take someone else's uh, since this one works. Since you know, <laughs> I wrote yeah. it. Um, but the um, the rest die, the resource die. You're talking about. I, I yeah. stole that from from David in, in the Black Hack. I just yeah. changed the, the the probability to make it. One of my easier favorite. you lose stuff.
1: One of my but. favorite things is the table that something always happens on uh, at camp um, because. I don't. There's nothing to me more disappointing than when you uh, roll something random when you're in camp and just nothing happens, and you're like, "Well, why did we go through the whole process of uh, having a camp? Yeah, yeah. If nothing happens, just
0: you can just you can just fade to black next day. Yeah. Remind us what's for breakfast? Yeah, same thing as yesterday. Okay, let's let's move on.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, and and so when did when did the inspiration for Knock Magazine happen? Uh, when did you meet? Uh, um Olivier uh, to to come up with this concept
0: so I think it must have been like almost four years ago now um I got an email out of the blue uh that was called a message from the past in English and everything um and it was this guy I hadn't talked to in at least 15 years uh Olivier who we'd met um Briefly, uh, once in the offices of a different role-playing game company, um, and uh, we chatted because I was doing that uh, that line of the twenty uh, fantasy um, adventures and, and and the setting that went uh, with it. And he told me he liked it, and I uh, and I said, uh, "Do you want to write for it?" He said yes, uh, and he ended up yeah writing in two three or four or, or of the of the books, but 20 ended. Um, so we we lost touch entirely. Uh, and he told me that he, he'd stopped even playing role-playing games uh, after that. And he'd like maybe a year or two prior to this, uh, he'd uh, fallen back into uh, into the OSR because I don't know, because of the the blogs he he could find, I guess. Uh, If you're you're a bit curious and uh, want to know more stuff and are not going to uh, do your research on YouTube, I think, especially at the time, the OSR was there because there was so much of it. Um, Anyway. peering back into your question, uh, he, he sent me that uh, that email saying, hey, I have an idea uh, for a, a magazine. He said, "revue," uh, which is like probably the same word as review. Uh, but that's a, a word for a uh, kind of a lux- luxury magazine in, in French um, that has that doesn't have uh, such a, a fast per- periodicity and uh, might not have news or, or um, like um, perishable content in it. Uh, and he had the, the idea of, uh, of taking some of the, the old stuff that he could find on blogs uh, maybe find others, uh, and he'd seen that I was kind of involved in the scene, and uh, said I, I should be the one to uh, be the editor. Uh, and since he's a genius layout uh, and graphic designer, um, it it happened, but it took two years because uh, we uh, we were we had day jobs that we, we needed need to do, and we kind of forgot about it. And, uh, once in a while, uh, I get an email with like a, a larger and larger PDF. And I'm like, oh, this is really going to happen. Uh, maybe I should uh, you know, try and talk to uh, such and such about uh, giving us one of, our, of their articles. So.
1: What was the uh, selection process like? Because you had years of um, blog posts to kind of probably flag and bookmark that you were like, this is, I like this. And, and to go back upon that. And what was the selection process? As far as did you did you sit down and decide like this this goes in, this goes out, and and who did you contact?
0: Um, I wouldn't be able to remember who I contacted first, but uh, we had we had this huge list. I had stuff. Olivier sent me like a huge huge file uh, with like sometimes some preferences. I like, really want to have this guy, and uh, it was important that we would get people with a little bit of name recognition. Um, So we probably started with them. But uh, the plan has always been to get as much content as we can uh, text-wise, then laid out, uh, get some art. And as soon as we have around 250 pages, we see what's in, we see what's out, and then we make the magazine. and it's, it's getting better and better because we probably have half of uh, issue four already. And I haven't looked at uh, no stuff since we released three. So,
1: one of the things that struck me was I mean, it's a, I would, you know, I would categorize it as a zine, but I mean, it's like 220 ish pages for each one. And that's not small, <laughs> it's not kind of a, a zine size. Did you always intend it to be that big, that large of a, of a volume?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, there is a limit in weight; uh, it has to be under five hundred grams so that it can be posted. With the very uh, generous, but sometimes uh, uh, random, uh, it's a culture—it's it's it's, um, it's books and magazines um, tariff that the French post does, uh, which is like twenty percent of what uh, anything else of the same weight. Uh, would cost, uh, but if it's over 500 grams, then uh, your your shipping goes up, I don't know, tenfold probably. Um, so no, it was the idea, like uh, the, the initial email says something like it's going to be huge and it's going to be overwhelming. And so you will have to keep it by your, your uh, set that's by the fire and uh, it will take months to digest. And uh, this is what we want to do which I thought was a great idea, but this entirely Olivier's concept, like I cannot take any credit on that content. I, I can actually take very little credit of the whole <laughs> thing, about the whole thing because the, the way it looks, I have nothing to do with. Uh, a lot of the articles uh, he really insisted on putting in. So yeah, um, I'm the little hands making sure that uh, we have text and uh, there aren't too many typos.
1: Who came up with the uh, the bric-a brac terminology?
0: Hard to say.
1: I, I just I just I really like it. and so you know uh, in I guess Western culture we'd call it knickknacks or whatever. but I had to kind of go I wanted to research where that terminology actually was rooted in and according to Wikipedia is French origin used in the Victorian area for a collection of curiosities and I can't think of a better, term for knock it's just
0: exactly that i was unaware of that but um yeah it's it's still used in in french um is yeah it's a, a mess of stuff and there is probably something good in it but you can't really tell from a distance
1: yeah and when just i mean there's so many con- contributors but i am just going to list a few off for our uh listeners um so there's gabor lux dyson logos Uh, Arnold K. from Goblin Punch, Emmy Allen from uh, Cave Girl Games, and Diogo Nogueira from Old Skull um, Publishing. And I mean, that's just a few of kind of some more recognizable names. And when I read Knock One, and this is my first, when I read it, the first thing I said is, how are they going to do number two? Like they used up so much good content in number one. Are they going to have any for number two? But you guys blew it out of the water again. You did a really good job
0: on number There's two. There's always more. Um, we also get more submissions that haven't been published uh, or are recent blog posts uh, from people that sometimes we know, sometimes we've been contrib- contributors before, uh, but sometimes they're they're just like new people in the in the industry. Um, so the proportion has kind of moved. Uh, there was very little uh, new content in the first uh, issue and the third is probably like 30%. I, I never counted. Um, but I am sure that if I go back to our, our, our original list uh, which I will do for issue four, uh, I'll find some really, really interesting like those little gems uh, that are uh, sleeping in, in the dusty uh, archives of the internet from 2010. And I yeah, I'm, I'm not worried, really. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, you're obviously doing a good job. So if I look at your stats from Kickstarter, your first one uh, that happened in November 2020, you had 1,600 backers. And that one, I think you mentioned it took about two years to kind of bring to fruition, but it was not full time. And then with that success, knock number two was kickstarted in May 2021. And you had 3,000 backers. So you more than doubled your backers. So word had gotten out. And that took you about six months to create. And then finally, knock number three, this last February, another 3,000 backers. And uh, shows no signs of letting up. And I know you're just starting to ship that out now, um, the print versions of it. Did yeah, you... should,
0: I hope everyone has it by now. Because it's, been, it's been a couple of months.
1: When you look back upon that progression, is it surprising to you that you achieved that kind of success?
0: <laughs> I had no idea. Like n- Neither of us. Uh, we were talking to each other saying, okay, 500 would be great because we, we would probably make some money on the printer um, a thousand would be amazing. And uh, yeah, it looks like uh, our niche within the niche within the niche of the hobby is uh, either growing or, or much bigger than, than we thought. And, um,
1: you know, speaking of the OSR and the niche, like why, like kind of what's your take on where it's going? Um, like, because it is, you know, I think it's expanding and I think you're getting some 5e players that are kind of starting to discover it. What what's your your uh, thoughts on where the future lies for OSR?
0: I don't know, man. I'm not a I'm not a, a thinker uh, of that that kind of stuff. It it looks like it's expanding in in different directions. Um, like we see very. Um, I don't want to say nostalgic because it's not always a good word. Um, stuff that, that adheres to the, to the old school rules. And uh, I'm talking about the game rules, but also stuff that looks like old stuff. But uh, we have people who make uh, games that are uh, entirely out there in, in terms of uh, setting and, and rules. Um, People are mixing a lot of stuff, like there's story games uh, or or more narrative uh, games that that come into the OSR, and there's OSR stuff that moves uh, over there as well. Um, The sword queen, uh, I'm not going to remember her name, I think her name is Ray, or their name is Ray. Released a, like a, a, an OSR-inspired cyberpunk game like two weeks ago, um, about uh, going into this alternate reality type like a Matrix kind kind of world uh, to destroy an AI and uh, become one of them. Um, and uh, they say, yeah, it's an OSR game. I took the rules from an OSR uh, setting and. Uh, is it really? Does it matter? I don't really know. Um, and then you see what the Markborg people are, are are doing, and uh, like Orgborg and uh, Cyborg. Uh, I'm, I'm very much waiting for them to uh, appear on my doorstep. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there is an OSR anymore, to be honest. Uh, except maybe you know, in one, in one. Little corner of the woods where uh, they, they they don't let anyone come uh, come in, and they want to be the defenders of the OSR. But I think we're kind of seeping everywhere and taking influences from from everywhere. So um, I I think we're all going in a lot of good directions.
1: Yeah, it's a very exciting time in the indie uh, game design world, or at least from my perspective, it is, and that's partly why you know, I run this podcast is to profile some indie designers because I just find the creativity fascinating. And, uh, when, so if you don't mind, maybe I'll ask you some uh, questions just about the, uh, the actual production of the magazine, because a lot of my viewers are in, into becoming indie game designers themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if you don't mind me delving into some of that, so the artwork, the cover artwork, um, the two monster faces in knock one and two by, uh, Tim Malloy um, illustrated covers. Like, how did, when did that um, decision get made for those monster faces? Because they're so iconic now that I think yeah. in, in Knock Three, when you didn't have a face, people were like, what happened? I love the face.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I've heard something like that. Um... A lot of those questions, I'm probably not going to be ans- able to answer in detail. But uh, that's that's a decision that Olivier took. He spends a lot of time uh, looking at uh, our portfolios and following people on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, um, so um, he he sent me uh, a few mock-ups uh, early on, and that's that's what that's what I, I was sending to, um, to prospective uh, contributors to get. Uh, uh, to 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 make them interested, um, but they, there was nothing like that. And then, yeah, one day, all of a sudden, those two uh, art pieces uh, existed before. Uh, I don't think they'd been published in print anywhere, but uh, they'd been uh, they'd been published online, and um, it felt like a very striking, uh, like yeah, obviously it worked. Um, but and yeah, then, we decided to go on, a, on a, in a different direction for the, the second year. So you'll um, get more adventurers doing something stupid <laughs> at the it, end of the year.
1: And it doesn't take away from uh, Knock 3, which has the cover by Bruno uh, Pose- uh, Prosecco, um, who also like is a great illustrator yeah, artist as amazing. well. It's just not the monster face that I think people had come to kind of expect, but still beautiful maybe, covers.
0: Maybe next year. I don't know.
1: <laughs> And when you and the, you might not be able to answer this as far as the layout goes, but I'm out, out of curiosity, how much does do the artists influence each page? And because it's a bric-a-brac and it's like influences from all over the place, how much do do the artists do the layout versus Olivier do the layout versus you editing their content and and that kind of thing? How how does that workflow happen?
0: Yeah. Olivier does, does everything. Uh, I've, I've got submissions a couple of times that were already uh, laid out, and uh, I told <laughs> I told the, the, the author it's it's been like uh, I think both times it was another illustrator that was the right the same person, um, and I had to tell them we won't be able to do that because uh, he does what he wants. <laughs> what he wants. Um, yeah, I. The, originally, the, the layout was going to be more classical, more, more normal. Um, but uh, Olivier wasn't, and to me, it looked, it looked great. Uh, but he wasn't very uh, satisfied with it. And um, at some point, probably late when, one night uh, in his barn, uh, he lived in the mountains of uh, the Basque country, uh, a place I've never even been to, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, he, he decided to break it, that's the word he used. Uh, he decided to break the layout and then started doing things. And uh, sometimes uh, some writers have complained about the fact that uh, uh, the the font size changes in the middle of the page and it looks a bit weird. But I think it it gives, uh, it gives the page a uh, character.
1: Yeah, well, it's similar to, say, Mork Borg, which I know people have similar complaints about in some respects, but then other people go, it's beautiful. Like, it's uh, it's interesting and it captivates me. And, it, you know, knock coincided kind of in and around the same time as Morkborg. So there must've been some kind of cohesion of thought of how zeit, to- zeit, zeit,
0: zeitgeist. zeitgeist, yeah, yeah. probably.
1: Um, and then you mentioned um, uh, Olivier is in Basque. And I also saw that you printed there as well um, which is you know perhaps unusual in, in in some respects because everybody's always trying to looking at reducing costs and you know so obviously sometimes people think well, my first reaction is go to China or something like that but uh does does he have a relationship or you have a relationship with the printers there?
0: No um so He Olivier had started um, doing magazines. uh, He had a magazine uh, before uh, before. It's called Battles. Uh, It's a um, wargaming magazine. um, That won a a few awards, and uh, that's how he convinced me, basically, because you know, uh, being great at uh, art direction uh, doesn't mean you you have the uh, the chops to be a uh, proper publisher and uh, and businessman uh, because yeah I'm, I'm neither <laughs> myself so I wouldn't understand um, and he was working with uh, a publisher and think, I think in Latvia um, but He's not from the Basque, but uh, he he moved there maybe 10 years ago and uh, thought that, yeah, maybe why why not ask people on the other side of the the mountains in Spain. And uh, he found a really good uh, house that does really good work for a little bit more money. Um, I think it costs us one extra euro, something like that. Um, it doesn't mean that it it will ship faster because somehow it has to go through Madrid <laughs> to come back uh, north and cross the Pyrenees, but uh, it's uh, it's worth it, really.
1: Well, it's probably nicer to have. I mean, that friendly face, and you know that you can actually see them or you know talk yeah. to them a little bit closer. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and then the next thing is like the distribution part of it, which I think is a challenge for a lot of small indie publishers. I mean, it, it could mean the difference between success and failure of your project in general. I mean, you could sell a million copies, but if you're losing money on the distribution and the printing and that kind of thing. So how, how have you found that as far as like, do you guys have a, a warehouse that you do all the, the shipping from or have you outsourced that?
0: It's no, it's in the barn. Uh, again, after, I've never been there. Uh, but, uh, Olivier has, he, he was doing that before and, uh, we're lucky again to, uh, be from a country that values culture. So far, it might change at some point. Uh, but, um, shipping was, Going to not be ruinous, uh, and then it's just a matter of, of having enough envelopes. And uh, what Odivido does is he hires his neighbors, okay. neighbors and friends uh, get uh, paid probably uh, uh, not entirely legally <laughs> uh, to uh, to help for a few days, and then uh, then it's out. But uh, on Issue two, we had a, a big problem uh, between between the pandemic and the summer. Uh, the French postal service lost six hundred envelopes, uh, which we which they never admitted to anything. Uh, so that that huge bag, the huge post- postal bag, was never found. Uh, so that cost us a bit, a bit of extra money. But um, now uh, everything is is trackable. That costs everyone an extra euro but uh, at least if they lose things uh they'll pay us back
1: and have you found using kickstarter uh, obviously you've used it three times now is it working for you or have you guys explored because i think there's a uh boy i forget the name of it but there's like that new um startup or like uh crowdfunding for game the game start I can't. Sorry game, if I don't game, forget it.
0: Game Game on tabletop. Tabletop, yeah. you mean? Yeah, yeah. They are French. Uh, mm. They are. Uh, they've been set up by one of uh, probably our, our biggest publisher. Um, like, you know, five people in an office. Might be six by now. I'm not sure. I haven't seen them in a while. Mm. Um. Yeah. I think Kickstarter, given the fact that we're on uh, we're dealing with an international international audience, uh, is still the best bet for us. And uh, there might be ethical reasons at some point why we would want to uh, leave them, but uh, I hope it doesn't get there because yeah, it's, it's, it does absolutely everything in terms of marketing for you. So. Um, and their 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 suggestion algorithm is getting better and better I like every time I get and the gods know if I get a lot of notifications and updates from a lot of companies that I follow um, every time at the bottom there's three suggestions there's two I want it's unending
1: an and and what do you see as the future like are you is knock able to be a a full-time job without prying too much into your life are you are you is that your goal to do it full-time or are you able to right now
0: yeah uh, at the moment i'm working one day a week uh, on my online my day job it was two day a week until uh, a month ago and uh, i was able to um so it's, it's uh, an actual day job it's just one day uh, terrible that joke sorry um Yeah, at the moment it's been it's been great. It's been like the probably the most money I've ever seen doing role-playing games. Uh uh, including the time when I was uh when I had a salary, you know, so so far so good, uh knocking on wood and everything. Uh and yeah, if we can if there are other things that we can do, uh that will interest our, our uh, readers, we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to provide.
1: Do you still have that desire to like make your own game, or is Knock now your baby that you just want to see uh, moving forward?
0: No, I, I, I never stop making games, so it's, uh, it's a problem. <laughs> uh. I have a number of unpublished games that I sometimes move bits off into the new game. Um, there's something I'm working on, it's very early and I can't repeat, uh, I'm not going to talk about it much. that um, I'm, I'm talking to Olivier regularly, <laughs> uh, uh, hoping that maybe we can uh, we can make it. Uh, I'm trying to fill a niche that uh, doesn't really uh, exist uh, instead of you know, doing another. I mean, I could do another clone or hack of something. Uh, I want to do that every, every other week. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it, I don't know, somehow making game systems is more interesting to me than making settings. I don't know why.
1: And um, I guess like closing off now on our uh, time together. If somebody wanted to contribute on, on your website, uh, maybe you could just kind of give the 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 pitch on how people can share their
0: work and maybe be involved in Knock Number Four and onward. Send me an email, people. Um, the address is knockmag one word at pm.me. Um, yeah, and. Uh, whether you've been writing before, whether you're an old Grog like uh, us, but especially if you're not an old Grog like us, um, send stuff and I'll tell you what I think. And uh, if, it's any, if I can see any in- potential for us to publish, I will help you make it better and uh, hopefully we'll get you uh, within our pages. Well,
1: that's great. And, uh... I just want to, you know, say thank you for your time today, sharing the story behind Knock. Um, My pleasure. Really amazing product. I think uh, when I think of the OSR, like that's the kind of the pitch that I would ever use is go, I'd hand somebody the OS or Knock magazine and go, this is the OSR. What do you think? Because I think it's it's so intriguing for them to kind of see the different viewpoints of the niche. That that's, is high
0: praise. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, once again, just I uh, want to say thank you to you and uh, Olivier uh, for bringing this to the world and uh, sharing the OSR and, and uh, promoting it in a really positive way.
0: You're very welcome. We'll, we'll keep doing it as long as people want it.